Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing this morning? Great to see you again. We're in the middle of a series that we're calling Searched, asking some of the the most Googled questions about faith and Christianity, especially for those of you that might be watching online or maybe here in person that come from a framework of, of saying, I'm not actually sure I believe all this stuff that you believe. I feel like I'm kind of sitting on the fringe, not quite ready to jump in. And so we're going to get to week two, but first, thank you. Uh, I want to offer an apology for those that were here last week, Uh, because I looked at the clock afterwards, and somehow, during the course of last week, I managed to talk for 58 minutes, which, which, I will say this, uh, may have just been to show that, uh, you know, Aaron came and did this great sermon not long ago, and he talked for a fair amount of time. Maybe I just wanted to show him I could talk for longer, uh, or whatever the reason, but somehow something slipped, and it just went on for a long time. So, if you came back from last week, thank you for coming back. If you came back and it was your first time last week, and you were like, wow, that was amazing, it was really long, I hope it's like that all the time, well, we'll talk about that. I don't don't know about today, but maybe we'll just make 58 minutes our new regular time. No, I'm joking, we wouldn't do that. Uh, Week two, we're going to jump into week two, but this series, as I say, is designed to kind of maybe move some roadblocks. If you're a person that would love to believe this incredible Jesus story, but there's some things that that get in the way, we would love to clear some of the groundwork for you. And for those of you that have been following Jesus for a while, you've been immersed in this story, what we would like to do for you is, is something that Paul, this writer, says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he talks about the role of people on stage doing what I'm doing as to equip other people to do the work of the ministry, as he terms it. Your role, your incredible privilege is to be involved in this story. You have communities, you have people in your circle of influence, and what you get to do is you get to go out and have great conversations with those people. The goal is never just let's get people to church because that will answer all of the problems. It's how can we as individuals take seriously the fact that that Jesus said of you and I, we are witnesses. Maybe not in exactly the same way his first followers were who saw everything with their eyes, but you and I, we have experiences. If you are in on this Jesus story, you have this relationship with this incredible God who you know loves you, and your call is not to keep that hidden, It's to share it with the world. So this series has that dual purpose. One, it's answers to questions if you're struggling to believe. And two, it's equipping to say, you get to play an incredible part in this journey. And so we're going to move on to question two. But I'm going to start somewhere a little different. I'm going to start with this question. Have you ever had somebody dislike you for no obvious reason? Now, all of us, we have these different traits, right? There's there's all of us that would say, I know my character. There's actually plenty of good reasons to dislike me. I actually have all of these flaws. But the sometimes that I encounter someone, I'm like, for some reason, I just get this sense that you don't like me. And I can remember distinctly back to a time where I was 11. I had just started high school. To give you a frame of reference, in, in England, you start high school at 11. I wasn't a child prodigy or something like that that started really early. But I jumped into high school, and I remember the first day, this, this young guy called Mohammed came up to me and he tried to pick a fight on me. 
For some reason, there was something about me that stuck out to him. Maybe it was just that I was the smallest child in our grade. I know it could be hard to believe that I wasn't always the dominating physical specimen that you see on stage in front of you today, but there was this time where I was the, the, maybe the weakest kid, and so he came looking for me. Maybe he didn't like the fact that I was a follower of Jesus and he was a Muslim, but whatever the reason was, he found something that to me there was no obvious reason, but he just came after me time and time again. There was this intense dislike, and to me it was heartbreaking until I found a solution to it. Apparently, I still had some kind of gift in words, so I managed to persuade him to let some of the teacher's tires down. So I managed to get him to get these tires and flatten them, and then I just went and snitched on him to the headmaster, and all was well after that. It was just like solved the problem somehow. Some mystery, he he didn't come near to me again. But I had that experience of dislike, and the second most Googled question about faith, and isn't this heartbreaking for those of you that have a relationship with God, is why does God hate me. Why does God hate me? Uh, And maybe you have a reason. If you're someone that would say, I have asked that question multiple times, maybe there's a reason that you have uh, come to believe that. Maybe you've seen signs like this one. This was a sign from a church uh, down south somewhere, uh, my geography fails me, called Westboro Baptist Church. And they would go out onto the streets and they would actually hold up signs that said this very thing, God, God hates you. God hates you. For whatever reason, whatever the source, the second most Googled question about faith was, why does God hate me? And so it turned the question around a little bit, and let's ask it from this point of view. Does God hate you? Or or maybe, does God hate anybody? Now, this is where, for those of you that have been, again, on this journey for a while, you might know that the Bible gets a little bit interesting. We have this book, for those of you outside, there's there's 66 books, multiple different writers, there's the Old Testament, there's 39 books, the New Testament, 27 books, and there are these couple of phrases where it uses the word hate about God's emotion towards a specific group of people. We'll read a couple of passages here, just so we can be honest and just clear some of the groundwork. I have loved you, says the Lord. Lord means God in this case, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert of jackals. In this particular passage, in this book, Malachi picks out these two characters and says, one, loved that one. The other one, hated that one. We have this text that we've just pulled out that just says apparently God does love some people and, and does hate some others. And he goes on to say, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. This group of people says, we're going to start everything from scratch again. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked lander, people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. What an interesting passage for those of you that have this idea that God is love. What does this mean? Why would the Bible, why would the writers within the Bible say things like this? And even in the New Testament, a guy called Paul, who was one of the first people to really unpack everything that Jesus taught, he will take this passage and say some things about it, just as it is written, quoting this Malachi. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then should we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
What interesting phrasing. What is Paul getting to with this? Does God just pick some people to hate and some people to love? What's interesting about these passages is every single one of them has a specific context. It seems like each of these writers is saying that somewhere God has a group of people he is calling, and and then there's other groups outside of those groups. And when it uses words like love and hate, it seems like these writers use them to distinguish between God's intense love for this one group of people and then this other group of people that it seems like at least he says, you're outside of what I'm doing right now. It's not a human emotion of hate. It seems like incredibly, as we get a little further in, God is able to both love and dislike something at the same time. He doesn't talk in just human emotions. But to give you some context for this, this is Paul showing us that this really is talking not about individuals, but about groups. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that myself, I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul is looking at this new Jesus thing that is happening all over the world and he's saying, these Jewish people, my brothers, my sisters, they're getting left behind and, and I long for them to be pulled in. I long for them to be pulled in. Everything that we have seen here is this idea of a corporate thing. It's God's umbrella of love. But what I'm going to show you for just a few minutes is we're going to watch as the multiple voices of this book, the Bible, say to us that God's love for individuals is pure and good. And he says, come in to this thing I'm doing. Don't sit on the outside. Don't say I'm going to be distant. Come into this thing. You as individuals are welcomed. Come in and find this incredible love that is life changing. So we're going to, for those of you that love to flash through different verses of the Bible and get all over the place, we're going to look at a few different ones here. This is Paul again speaking to a group of people in Athens and I in, in a very fun way got to go and stand where he did this on the Areopagus and the sun was coming up and I got to imagine this incredible moment where this Paul stands there and, and speaks these words of God's love. God intended that they, the whole world that is, would seek him and perhaps reach for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we were his offspring, his children. Although God overlooked the ignorance of earlier times, he now commands all people everywhere to repent. And that word repent means literally to turn around and walk towards something. And so the message of this passage is God is saying, just come. Whoever you are, whatever your background is, come into this thing that I am doing. You are welcomed in. You are loved. And this follower of Jesus, John, as he wrestles after Jesus' death and resurrection with all of this means, says, my children... I write this to you so that you will not sin. If anybody does sin, we have a, an advocate, a defender, a lawyer, a stand beside with the Father. Jesus, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And, and not only for ours, but for the sin, also the sins of the whole world. This passage gives this breadth of this love, that God's love is beyond understanding. It is for each and every person, and it calls you in. It says, come, come into this thing that I am doing. Same writer again, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This picture of these New Testament writers is that we can know that we are loved by God because he came on a mission for us, that Jesus gave his life for us, that we might be in relationship with him, that new things might happen. We might be part of a new story. And and that broad thing, that thing that defines his life, that that group of people, the church that he is using and using to shape the world, He says, come in, you are welcome in, whoever you are, whatever your background. And and we'll look at one last one. This is Jesus as he arrives in the city, Jerusalem. And he looks over from the hill over the city and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? But you were not willing. That phrase, you were not willing, it seems that all of the uncertainty, all of the hesitancy is on our part, not on God's part. So when we ask this question, does God love you? At least from the, the view of the, the Bible, of the scripture of these different writers, the overwhelming answer over and over again is, well, however you feel, God loves you. He doesn't hate you. You might say that God is love, and so his love for us is, it's not a weak emotion, it's not just a feeling, it's a strong action that says, not only do I love you, but I will come into this world and I'll give my life for you. I'll take your place But, but, the question, does God hate me? My question is this, is that actually a theological question? Is the answer, if you're outside of the church thing, if your question is, does God hate me, is the answer you're looking for, well, the Bible says dot, 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 dot. The Bible tells me that God loves me. I actually wonder if it is a theological question at its heart at all. I wonder if it's an experiential question. I wonder if it's an experiential question. I wonder if it's this process of looking at the world that we experience and saying, why is it the way it is? Now, last week we talked about for 58 minutes, so I should have got to say everything that I wanted to say. We looked at the problem of evil and why are these things that are broken, and you can go back and look at that if that is some of your question. But, but I think my, my sense of this question, why does God hate me, is it's a little bit more personal. Because alongside this question, in some of the same searches by some of the same people, were these other set of questions that seemed to sort of show new light on it. It it was this question. Why did God make me dot, dot, dot? And there were all sorts of different answers. Why did God make me ugly? Why did God make me stupid? Why did God make me gay? Why did God make me a different color? Why did God make me? And you could go on and on and on and you could watch as people were processing this question. If this God made me and if he is good, why didn't he give me all of the things that would make it easier for me to find success in life? Why didn't he give me the tools that I needed? If you think of this picture of the American dream, this thing that maybe we chase after, this idea of happiness and some kind of wealth and a family and and however you might describe that, it seemed that this question was linked to that question. It was linked to the idea that if only God had taken, would take away this one trait, this one struggle, then everything would be fine. And maybe you can resonate with that question. Maybe you've sat there in your own sort of humanity and had moments where you've said, I don't like this thing. I feel there's this thing that constantly gets in the way of me getting everything that I would want out of life. As a young person, I was, surprising to people that know me now, decidedly low on confidence. 
I can remember back to 16, 17, and just been crushed by this weight of expectation, crushed by this idea of, am I, do I have what is needed to be successful? I was getting all these pushes from different people. You should do this career. You should follow this path. And, and I would look at myself and say, I don't feel able to do any of that. And, and I don't feel able to talk to girls in the way that I would like to. And I don't feel able to, to go into a business and run it the way that I would want to. And all of these different struggles, I could look at myself and say, I don't feel like I have what it takes. And it seems like for so many of us, there's that question that comes up over and over again. Am I enough? Do I add up? And oh God, if, if you made me, why couldn't you have changed some of those traits? Why couldn't you take away some of those burdens, those things that I hold? Maybe I'd phrase this whole question this way. In what ways do you find the world you experience to be dissatisfying? And how do you wish you could change it? Because whether you're in this room or whether you're watching online, it seems like there's a whole group of people that say, I would love to change something about who I am so I might experience the world differently. And that, that is the thing that would, be, would enable me to say that God loves me. If he only gave me the tools that I need to be successful. If he only gave me the things that I need to find my way in this world. Now, you may not think that is a good question. You may be, feel like you're, you're beyond that question, but it seems like for a whole bunch of us, that question is still incredibly relevant. And so we're going to look at a passage. We're going to look in depth at a passage of Jesus. And it's in John chapter 7. I'm going to read it first. If you have a text, uh, which is a wonderful thing to bring, uh, you can have it on your phone, you could have it on a tablet, you could have it in an old paper copy, because apparently some of us still do that thing where we actually have a book that we carry around. And we're going to read it, but I'm going to bring up bits on the screen afterwards. So you can follow along in John chapter 7 if you like. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, hold that in your head a little bit, festival of tabernacles is this big deal, this big celebration. Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he also went, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus, asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. However, whoever speaks on his own does not does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? 
You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearance, but instead judge, judge correctly. At this point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the chosen one? But we know who this this man is. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me, and you know where I am from, but I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whisper such things and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. And Jesus said, I'm only with you a short time and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, we will look for him and we will not find him? And where I am, you cannot come. Verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. Man, there's a whole chunk of stuff in there, and we're going to focus mainly on the start and the end, and I'm going to bring those passages up on the screen. But let's pray over this part of the text and ask that God would speak to us particularly as a group of people. God, thank you for this book that you have given us. Thank you that we as your followers believe that you speak to us particularly through it, that you breathed on this book and it became alive. For those of us, and I feel this so strongly today, for those of us that come in feeling afflicted, would you comfort us? For those that come in comfortable, would you afflict us? But would you lead each of us closer to you and give each of us a new sense of the fact that we are loved by you, the God, the creator of the universe? And so we ask that because of Jesus. We have read about your love for us. Now I long for us as a group of people to experience it in new ways. Would you do that for us today? Through our friend, the Spirit. Amen. Okay, so here we go. Whole of John chapter 7. We just read a huge chunk of it. Let's go back to the beginning. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. So Jesus at this point has done some incredible miracles. Word has got up, got around about him. People have started to grasp that he is somebody very significant. And the Jewish leaders who are trying to keep some kind of peace with this Roman Empire are very decidedly saying, we got a deal with this situation. It's starting to get very, very political. And, and so Jesus, we're told, goes back to somewhere around the area that he had grown up in, in Galilee. And then there comes the moment where there's a festival. To Jewish people, festivals were a huge, big deal. There were multiple big festivals every year, things that you may be familiar with, like Passover, but, but also things that you may not be familiar with, like this one, the Feast of Tabernacles. 
We're not going to read the passage back in the Old Testament, but this feast was given to this Jewish people as a reminder, a remembrance that they had spent multiple years in the wilderness. They hadn't always lived in a set location. They had had to sort of go with the flow and move around. So once a year, this whole group of people would leave their houses, would build shelters out in the sort of wilderness areas, and they would live in them for a set number of days. It was very traditional for as many Jewish people as could possibly afford it to go and be in Jerusalem uh, in these times. And, and it was a mixture of religious festival and also a real party. There was like this incredible energy to it. There was this joy to it. And so this one particularly was this festival of joy. It was a very significant day when the Feast of Tabernacles or Festival of Tabernacles was near. Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. There's this push. Jesus, go and and make yourself famous. Go out into the world and show everybody what you could do. Why are you staying in this backwater town that we live in? It's, it's like staying in some tiny town in Nebraska when you can come to Denver. Or there's probably a better example than that. Upstate New York when you could be in the city. Why are you still here, Jesus? If you are able to do what you say you can do, go and show the world. Jerusalem at this point was really could easily be described as the religious center of the world. And there's this push from his family, go, go and make yourself famous. Go and let everybody see these incredible works. And of course, you can hear the suspicion under their voices, right? If you can really do it, if you really have these abilities that everyone says you do, we don't believe you can, but go on, go and show us. Go and prove your, yourself to us and to the rest of the world. Now, for those of you that love Bible trivia, love interesting facts, which isn't everybody, but it's definitely some of you, the interesting thing between Matthew, Mark, Luke, these first three Gospels, and then John, is that when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the idea you get is that the first time Jesus goes to Jerusalem is when he goes through Palm Sunday to crucifixion to resurrection. But John says that Jesus had been multiple times before that. We get this more detailed information about Jesus' life. If you were to just read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you might come away with the impression that Jesus' teaching ministry lasted just a few months. When you read John, you get this bigger picture and you get to see this multiple years that Jesus spent with his followers. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet come. After this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret, all the way through these biographies of Jesus' life. We get this idea and over and over again that there's this secret that's just waiting to be revealed. Jesus doesn't reveal himself to everybody. It's this sort of thing that's kept hidden for a little bit. And then there's this movement into Jerusalem. And you can see this tension starting to build. You know that these religious leaders dislike Jesus intensely. And so what's going to happen when these two things combine? What's going to happen when you have this big Jewish ceremony, this big moment, and then you have Jesus there being Jesus in that world? And we get to wait for this thing. And for a while, we go through multiple arguments between these religious leaders and Jesus, but we're going to skip over those. There's just too much there to cover because I want to get to this end of the passage that we read, which is really, for me, this significant voice into the conversation that we're having. On the last 
and greatest day of the festival. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So I want you to understand some of what is going on here. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, there would be this incredible procession that was really the highlight of everything that took place. The priests would walk down from the temple to a pool, a pool of water that sat in Jerusalem known as the Pool of Siloam, and they would take some water, which I have right here for us, I don't have a pool, I don't have a fountain or anything like that, but they would take water from this pool and put it in a basin. And then this huge procession would take place where the people would follow as the priests walked back up to the temple mount and they would go into the temple building and they would take this basin of water and as this culmination of the feast, they would take the water and they would spill it over this altar. In the original tradition of the Feast of Tabernacles, it was this idea that, God, we need water for the world to work. We need your fresh water. We need your rain to come down because we need crops to grow. We need everything to be what it's supposed to be. We need this from you. And so we pour this water out and say, God, would you continue to be faithful, continue to be good? Would you continue to give us the water that we need? And then think about what it means for Jesus to do this at that moment. Think about anything from American life that says to you, this is like a key moment. Now, we maybe don't have those big religious moments like they had back in the first century, but we have things like Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. What would it look like for someone to wander out just as the Santa Claus float comes past at the last moment? What would it look like in the middle of the Super Bowl for someone to come and say, this is all about me, or the World Series to say, this is all about me? What would it look like for anyone to essentially hijack this big moment of community life, which is just everyone looks forward to? And you could probably pick out one or two different examples for yourselves. We have these moments in corporate life that everybody has their attention focused on a specific thing, a specific detail. And in this moment, just in the moment everyone's waiting for, Jesus walks out and says these words. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. In one of the key moments of religious life in Jerusalem, in the whole of the religion of Judaism, Jesus stands up and says, in essence, this thing will not give you what you are looking for. This thing, this religious practice, this religious ceremony, it will not do what you want it to do. And he says over and over again, for those of you that feel you are thirsty, for those of you that have some sense of dissatisfaction, some sense of everything isn't the way it's supposed to be, for those of you that feel like you're outsiders, for those of you who feel like some sense of this isn't the way it's supposed to be, come to me. In the middle of a group of religious leaders that are leading people through a religious practice that is one of the highlights of the year, Jesus says, this doesn't work. Come to me. Come to me and rivers of living water will flow from within you. And then John unpacks that for us a little bit. By this, he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. 
Up until that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. If there was any confusion about just how deconstructing Jesus was being about the religious system of his day, John makes sure that we know afterwards. He's talking about a new thing. The old thing doesn't work anymore. The old thing can't give you what you want. There's a new thing you're invited into. I can give you real life. I can give you real water. And though he doesn't go into details about just how much of a range of dissatisfaction there might be in each of the people listening, I think that question is implied. And so my question for you is, how are you thirsty? And what water are you drinking to quench it? How are you thirsty? And what water are you drinking to quench it. When we look at that question, why does God hate me, and the ways that it's connected to these other questions, like why did God make me, dot, 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 and really the implied question of why can't I get everything that I want out of life? Jesus' question for us is, are you thirsty? And that thirst that's internal, that sense of, I don't feel like I'm getting everything that I want, what are we looking for to quench that thirst? What thing are we going after? And, and there could be so many, right? It could be any of these things and more. It could be relationships. It could be success at work. It could be outward appearance. It could be wealth and fame. It could be freedom and a sense of getting to do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it. It could be religion. And the implication that Jesus gives is, I am the only one that can satisfy Our idea that if God just made us a little bit different, that we could get everything that we wanted out of life and then we would be happy, according to Jesus, is nonsense. It just doesn't work that way. And this idea isn't even just brand new to Jesus. Throughout the rest of the different voices in Scripture, there'll be others that will say something similar. This is a guy called Jeremiah in chapter 2. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The implication across the whole bunch of voices is if you're relying on something that you think this world can give you for this sense of satisfaction, if you're hoping that this thirst will go away, and you're looking, at it, looking for it in any one of these things, ultimately, it won't work. And even if you could change those things that you think are stopping you getting what you want there, it's just not going to work. Eventually, something will be missing. I got to share with you guys a little while ago about my, my failure in investing, how I recognize that I actually am just not good managing my own money, and that's why there's some experts that get to help me do those kind of things. And yet, I've had some successes. I've had some moments of victory, and I bought something that looks like this. So some of the, you follow uh, the, the news may have heard of something called Dogecoin, and this is Dogecoin. And I bought 14,000 of them. And I bought each one for 0.06 cents. I don't even know how to measure that in terms that everyone can understand. It means that I bought lots for about $100. And then miraculously something happened. Elon Musk mentioned this coin. And suddenly its value skyrocketed because he said this coin is going to the moon. And so it did. And it went up to three cents a coin. And so I sold it. 
I made $500 from my $100, and life felt pretty good. I was actually kind of like, I could, I could do this. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll become a financial investor on the side. It can be my side hustle. Or I'll just get everyone in the church to invest in my little thing that, that, that I've got going on. That would be bad. <laughs> There's no way that that would end well. Uh, but what happened afterwards is this. I sold it, and it just kept going up. So this week, at some point, it was now worth 30 or 40 cents a coin. And suddenly, my $500 that I made, it left me with this sense of, it could have been 5,000. I could have, if I just kept it for longer, it could have been more. And I got to see in myself this own sense of, it doesn't matter how much success I achieve, there'll still be something that says to me, if only I could get more, if only more would come my way. And it's just one of those multiple examples we looked at. It's just the, the realm of wealth and finance, but, but I didn't have enough. Even the extra I got was not enough for me. And so I was left voicing in my own head this quote by Dave Portnoy on Twitter. I am not jealous about Dogecoin. I am not jealous about Dogecoin. I am not jealous about Dogecoin. Knowing that deep inside me there was this deep jealousy and frustration. If only, if only, if only I could have had more. Doesn't that speak to what this writer in Ecclesiastes will say? Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. That list of things, the relationships, the work life, the wealth, the looks, everything that we're talking about, if that is what we look for for satisfaction, eventually you get to this point, oh, if only I had more. If only there was another thing. If only I could just have a little bit more stuff. Jesus talks about himself as the water of life. He talks about this, him being this thing that can provide in the midst of our thirst. And it got me thinking about this thing. I find something very deeply, I would even say spiritual about the ocean. There's something about it that I just love. There's just this, this wonder to it. Maybe it's the largeness of it. Maybe it's the joy that it brings, the sense of refreshing. I can just sit there for hours and, and just doze. And yet, this thing is beyond comparison. So if you were to take the ocean and talk about it in terms of these things, gallon jugs, well, there's this many of them. I don't know what that number is. I think it's quintillion. Uh, 352 quintillion gallon jugs of water in the ocean. Now, to give you a sense of what a quintillion is, a quintillion is to a billion, the same as a billion is to one. So there are as many billions in one quintillion. as a, so That's a lot of water, right? If you want it in bathtubs, it's like 70 quintillion bathtubs or something like that. There is so much of this thing. It is so broad. And when I think about it, it reminds me of how we look to quench our thirst, that internal sense that we need something out of life. There are all these things that are open to us, all these options that we can go after, the wealth, the relationships, the religious life, all of these different things. And yet the problem with the ocean is what in terms of drinking it for water? It doesn't quench thirst. We used to have this saying in England, I, I don't know if it made it over here, but we used to say, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Because this thing is great for so many things. It's great for ocean life, it's great for scuba diving, it's great for surfing, it's great for a multitude of things. It's great unless you want it to quench your thirst. And that one thing, it cannot do without some crazy scientific process of desalinization, which some of you will come and give me as your answer to the whole problem later on. But there's this sense within us of, I long to be quenched. 
I long to get what I want out of life. And yet time and time again, it feels like we go back to this as a source. We take the beautiful, refreshing water that Jesus offers and we say, I'm I'm not sure about that one. And, And we... We look to something that can never quench thirst. Jesus' message to this group of people is this religious life will not give you what you want. This religious life is not enough for you. Only I can quench that internal sense of thirst. And and when we can't find it, we go looking for it in all these different places. The writer Christopher McGougal tells this fascinating story about a bunch of ultra runners out in the Sierra Miadas. And at one point, two of the younger guys go running without enough of a water supply, and so they get stuck out in the wilderness. And unsure where to go, completely disorientated and completely lost, they begin to wander around desperately looking for water. And they come to this moment where they find a pool of stagnant water that's been sitting in the rocks, and they know that it's not good for drinking, and yet what is their other option? Whether your image that you pick is salt water or contaminated water, my sense is that so many of us, our dissatisfaction of life is constantly around drinking water that can never do what we want it to do. I would love you to reflect on this question with me. What water am I drinking? If you have a notepad and paper, if you have a phone, I would love you to write down, where do you get your sense of identity from? When you think about your desires for life, when you think about what you hope to get out of life, when you think about what gives you that sense of satisfaction, what are you looking to? Is the thing for you relationship? Is it the question, I could, if only I could have this relationship, everything would be fine. If only I could get married, if only I could have kids, if only I could have grandkids, if only I could find somebody to love me. Is it wealth? If only I could find a little bit more money, then, then suddenly everything would be easy. I could start giving some more money. If I, if I only had some money, I could start sort of, I could buy a house and then that would be fine as well. That would just change my life dramatically. Is it fame? Is it sort of the outward appearance? Is it if I could only change this physical feature about myself? If only I could get rid of the little bit of extra weight I'm carrying? If only I could get rid of one of these facial spots that I have? Whatever it is, is there something that you're like, if only I could fix that, everything would be good. Think about all of that list that we run. If only I could have more success at work. If only I could get a promotion. If only my business would really take off. Steve sketched some of that out for us in his call to worship. If only, if only, if only, I would, the internal sense of thirst, that would go. And I would be happy. And all would be well. Jesus' message seems to be, the writers of the Bible, their message to us seems to be, it might for a second It might in a moment, but eventually there'll be another thing. Eventually there'll be another thing. If that question of why does God hate me is related to why can't I get what I want out of life, or why did God make me dot, 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 because if he didn't, everything would be good. Well, I I deeply sympathize with that experience of not being what you want to be, but I don't know that it would ever fix the internal problem. There is something that we need, and Jesus says, I am the only one that can give it. And if you're struggling with that idea of, does God hate me? Is there a physical thing about me? Why did he make me in this particular way? Here's some other good news for you. This is what what God says to this prophet Samuel, who's picking a king for Israel. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look 
at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. There's this idea that God sees something internal that we don't see. He has a value system that we don't always appreciate. Whatever you think about yourself, and however broken is the wrong word, but however much you feel there's something about you that you wish God had done differently, God says, I don't have the same standards that the world around you has. This is Helen Keller, and we'll finish with her example. Deaf and blind at 19 years old and went on to do some of the most incredible things and said over and over again in her language, there was something about my disabilities, as she phrased them, that has called me close to God. I have experienced him because of them. And her life-changing life was only possible out of relationship with Jesus. Whoever, however you think there's something about you that, that doesn't fit, that doesn't make sense, the overwhelming message of these writers in the Bible is God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and calls you deeper to him. God is love, and his love for us is not a weak emotion, but a strong action based on who he is. And he invites us to return that love to him. What water am I drinking? When I have that sense of, I need more out of life, what am I looking to? What am I looking to? I'm going to invite us into a time of communion. It's something that we're doing every week for the next six weeks. Because while these questions are important, relationship with God, it seems, doesn't come out of knowing the right answers. It seems like it comes out of experiencing this God who loves you for yourself. And communion is sketched in multiple different ways. It has multiple applications. Sometimes it's a celebration. Sometimes it's a contemplation. One of the things Jesus said about it was that it is a remembrance Do this and remember me. As long as you are in this world, remember, go back to this story of this God that loves you, that gave his life for you. And I would love us to invite, I would love to invite us into this time. One of the the tensions I experience in my own life as someone who is living in the way of Jesus and trying to do it with the heart of Jesus is that in the job that I do, there'll be multiple people that I pray for during the week, whether it's staff, whether it's people in the community, whether it's my family members. And there'll be moments where I I, I realize that it's been a while since I've reflected back to Jesus, that, that statement, that idea that his love, God is love and his love for us is not a weak emotion, but a strong action based on who he is. There'll be a season where I forget to internalize that, forget to remind myself that I am deeply loved by God and I would love to invite you into a moment of reminding yourself of that of as we do communion reflecting God's love for you back to him we're going to do it through a song my Jesus I love thee it's definitely an older song for some of you you'll love it for some of you it will be a new kind of old you'll be like I haven't heard that before but it's a good one and it's this this contemplative song that allows us to say Jesus you have loved me well then maybe all of these things that you have carried, all of these hopes and expectations of life, all of the lists that we talked about, all of the ways that you have looked for that thirst to be quenched. And yet he says, I am enough. Come to me and I will give you living water. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.